Would you pray with me, please? Oh, Father in heaven, we pray that you would use this hour for the good of your people and for the good of those who do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that you would enable me to speak as your word says, as the oracles of God, and that you would move upon all of our hearts to receive your word preached. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There are uh, many questions uh, that Christians might get today from people in the world who are not familiar with the Christian faith. And some of these questions uh, that we sometimes receive, uh, there was a time perhaps in which uh, the answers would have been uh, well known to people even outside of the church and outside of the Christian faith. And yet, uh, in our day and age now, it appears that much about the Christian faith that could at one point be assumed uh, could no longer uh, be assumed. One such question we sometimes get as individual Christians or as churches is um, very simply, what is a Christian? What is a Christian? I wonder if someone asked you that question, maybe an unconverted friend or neighbor or family member, what is a Christian? What would you say? Well, the good news is there's more than one right answer, uh, more than one way in which we can answer that question. You might say, well, a Christian is a child of God. A Christian is someone who has God as father, and that would be true. Uh, You might say a Christian uh, is someone who believes the Bible, believes its message, and seeks to live by it. And to some degree, that would be true as well. My favorite way of answering that question is with verbs. Uh, What can be said of a Christian in action? Okay, so the verbs I usually use when describing what a Christian is, is I say a Christian is one who, first of all, believes, repents, and follows. That's something that I think even a child can remember. A Christian believes, repents, and follows. What do I mean by those verbs? Well, first of all, a Christian is one who believes. Uh, Believes what? The Christian is one who believes what we call the gospel, which is the good news. It's something specific, a specific narrative, a specific message. A Christian believes the good news that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in the flesh. He was born of the Virgin Mary. And he dwelt among sinful people. And he lived a sinless, perfect life. And he went to the cross. And there on the cross, he died for the sins of his people and suffered the wrath of God in the place of those who deserved God's wrath. And there he died on the cross. But he did not remain in the grave. But three days later, he rose again. And he ascended to his Father. And he's seated at the right hand of God where he makes intercessions for his people. And in rising from the dead, it is signified that God was pleased with his sacrifice. That he overcame sin and death and the grave. And a Christian is one who puts their faith, their trust in this message. It's not just that they believe this is factual, historical information that's in some way historically reliable. But they actually assent to this truth. They embrace this truth and in some way... Stake their lives on this truth. Faith is believing the gospel, staking all that I am on all that Christ is. That is what the believer does. The Christian is one who believes the gospel. But secondly, Christian is one who repents. What do I mean by that? Well, at least it means that a Christian is someone who has seen sin for what it is, seen sin from God's perspective, acknowledges sin's wickedness, and that sin is evil and is an affront to God. 
and not only apologizes to God, asks forgiveness for sins, but actually turns away from a life of sin and turns to a life of repentance and faith and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a turning from sin and a turning unto God. A Christian believes, a Christian repents, and then thirdly, I like to say that a Christian follows. A Christian follows. And who do Christians follow? Well, they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. They believe the gospel, they repent of their sins, and then they embark on a life of discipleship where they follow the Lord Jesus not only as their Savior but as their Lord and they seek to follow His commands to obey Him from the heart and to be well-pleasing to Him and to give their life as a living sacrifice to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Christian believes, repents, and follows. Now there's a fourth verb that I can include in there. Okay? And this is somewhat after those first three things happen. A Christian is baptized. Christian, ordinarily, is baptized. Uh, Coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith, embracing Him as Savior and Lord, they follow Him in obedience in the waters of baptism. Now, there are very few ceremonies in the Christian life. We are a people that uh, fundamentally walk by faith and not by sight. But God has not left us without certain ordinances or sacraments, certain ceremonies, and one of them is baptism. Baptism is a physical sign of a spiritual reality. Uh, We're going to see in a few moments after the sermon, uh, David and Eve and I are going to go to the back, and then you're going to see us in the baptismal tank, and I'm going to submerge David under the water, and I'm going to pull him up out of the water, and this is all going to be done in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I want to make this clear. We by no means believe that there's any mystical power in that water. Uh, We don't believe that, that God somehow comes in the water in a mystical way and cleanses David from his sins. But we do believe it is a physical sign of a spiritual reality. Uh, What is being symbolized in the waters of baptism has actually happened in actual fact in David's heart and in the heart of every true child of God. And that is what I want to talk about this morning. The Bible speaks in many places about the symbolism of baptism. In at least a couple of places, the Bible speaks of baptism as signifying a cleansing from sin. So the, the, the water okay, being used in baptism is to symbolize this cleansing that takes place in the heart of the believer. In another place, the Bible speaks of baptism as signifying the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit coming upon that believer and indwelling that believer. In another place, the Bible speaks of baptism as sort of the first step of discipleship. It's sort of like that first act of obedience in following the Lord Jesus. That once you believe the gospel... Then you come and identify with him in the waters of baptism. And isn't that what our Lord said? He told his disciples on the mountain, right? Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit, and then teaching them to do all that I have commanded you. So being baptized is sort of this initiation into the Christian community, this initiation into the church. It's the first act of discipleship in following the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Bible also speaks of baptism as signifying our union with Christ. The idea that we have been buried with Christ somehow in His death, and we have been raised with Him in His resurrection to newness of life. And that's what you're going to be symbolized here. David will be submerged under the water. And that is to symbolize that being united with Christ, he is dead to sin. Just as Christ died in victory over sin, David, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, is dead to his own sin, dead to the old way of life. And then when he's raised out of that water, it symbolizes that he is raised to newness of life. He is alive to God 
in Christ Jesus. And it's this particular symbolism that I want us to consider for a few moments this morning. Please look again, if you have your Bibles open to Romans 6. We want to look just at verse 11. We've already read this passage in its context. I want to just meditate on verse 11, then we will reflect back on some of the other verses in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 11 says this, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What does baptism symbolize? Three things. Baptism symbolizes that we are dead to sin. And then we see that it symbolizes that we're alive to God. And then thirdly, that we are united to Christ. So I have three points this morning. Dead to sin, alive to God, and united to Christ. First of all, notice with me that baptism symbolizes that the individual being baptized, the person being baptized is dead to sin. Please look with me at verses 6 and 7 of Romans chapter 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him, that is Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, for one who has died has been set free from sin. What does it mean for a Christian to be dead to sin? Well, at least three things. First of all, what it means to be dead to sin is that for the Christian, he or she no longer has sin as his or her master. For the Christian, he or she no longer has sin as his or her master. Now, I trust you all know this, right? According to the Bible, human nature is not basically good, not fundamentally good. Human nature, according to the Scriptures, is fundamentally bad. There's a brokenness in human nature. There's a dislocation. There's a fracture. There's a sin nature in each one of us when we were born into this world. Isn't that what Ephesians 2.1 says? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Every man or woman outside of Christ is dead in trespasses and sins. Human nature is fundamentally broken. Human nature is fundamentally wicked outside of Christ. And I contend that every day, even right now at this moment, that contention that every human being is dead in trespasses and sins is at every hour being vindicated out in the world. I mean, let's, let's be honest and let's be real. When you look at human nature, when you look at events like what took place uh, Sunday night last week in Las Vegas, is human nature fundamentally good? Or is human nature basically sinful, basically broken, basically dislocated and fractured? My wife is two weeks away from having our first baby. We're having a little baby boy that we hope to welcome, God willing, in a couple of weeks. And I look forward to teaching this little boy all sorts of things. I'm a big sports guy. I hope to teach him about football and about basketball. And I hope to teach him uh, how it is that you can love the New York Mets faithfully, even though they're so bad. Uh, what it is to persevere as a fan of a particular franchise. I hope to teach him to mow the lawn. I hope to teach him to change a tire. But one thing I will never have to teach my son, I guarantee you, is how to do wrong. I'll never have to teach him how to sin. I'll never have to teach him how to disobey his mom and his dad. He'll figure that out on his own, I guarantee you. Why? Because human nature isn't fundamentally, isn't basically bent toward doing right. Human nature is bent toward doing wrong. We'll have to teach our son how to do right. We'll have to teach him how to honor his father and mother, how to obey mommy and daddy, how to be well-pleasing to God. Because human nature outside of Christ is dead in trespasses and sins. We all, born into this world, have sin as our master. We're in bondage to sin. We're enslaved to sin. 
And sin is indeed a terrible master. Sin is brutal. Sin is cruel. Sin is irrational and vicious. Sin's only desire is to lie to you, to deceive you, to make promises that it can't keep. Sin wants to have you, and sin wants to dominate you and overcome you and to keep you in slavery and in bondage. I'm reminded of the words that God said to Cain. You remember the story of Cain and Abel? Cain is contemplating doing a terrible sin, committing a terrible sin against God. And what does God say to him? He says, sin, even now, is crouching at the door. And its desire is to have you, to dominate you, to bend your will to its will. Sin's desire is to have you. It reminds me of Christ's words to Peter in the garden. He says that, Uh, Satan has asked for you, Peter, that he might sift you as wheat. That's sin's desire for each and every one of us. Every child you see born into this world, Satan wants to have that child. Sin wants to overcome that child and enslave that child in bondage to sin. Sin will wreck you. And sin pays terrible wages. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. If you live a life in bondage to your sin, the wages that will be paid to you are only death. And judgment. But for the Christian, for the one who knows the Lord Jesus Christ, he or she is said to be dead to sin. Christian no longer has sin as his or her master. Sin no longer reigns in, in dominion and bondage over that particular individual. A sinner is no longer, in, or excuse me, a Christian is no longer enslaved to sin. They no longer have sin as master. They have a new master, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, we're dead to our sin if we're in the Lord Jesus Christ. Which means for you, Christian, if you know Jesus, you're dead to sin. You're freed from sin. And you don't have to listen to that old master any longer. You don't have to sin. You don't have to live in bondage to sin. You don't have to live like sin has dominion over your life. You don't have to sin. He's no longer your master. You have a new master. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's your delight, your privilege, your pleasure to follow Him In obedience, living a life that is dead to sin, dead to the old way of life, dead to the old master. Romans 6, 12-14, just a couple of verses on and our text says this, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. What's Paul getting at in this text when he says, talks about presenting our members? The idea is that, you know, I have an arm and I have legs and eyes. It's like, here's my arm. It can do one of two things. It can serve the old master of sin. I can present it to sin and say, here, sin, have your way. I want to live in bondage to you. Or you can present your members to Christ to live in righteousness. And say, Lord, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my hands, take my feet, take my eyes, take my ears. They're Yours. And I present my members to You as my new master to live in service to You. For the Christian, what does it mean that he or she is dead to sin? It means that he or she is dead to the old master, no longer has sin as master. But secondly, I think it means this, that for the Christian, sin is no longer what he or she innately desires. Sin is no longer what he or she innately desires. Now, while those who are dead in sin, who are outside of Christ, they do have desires, and those desires are bent toward sin. But when someone has been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ, has been regenerated, they're given a new nature. And they now 
Do not desire to live in sin. Do not desire to live a life in rebellion against God and in evil and wickedness and darkness. They desire to live to Christ. Naturally, though, born into this world, dead in sin, we all desire darkness and sin, don't we? I mean, the Lord said this. John 3 and verse 19 says that light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Some of you can remember, perhaps, a time before you came to faith in Jesus Christ, you can remember, I loved darkness. I loved my sin. In fact, most of my days were spent, were based around when I could next indulge my sin. Uh, I measured my time by when I could go to the bar or go to that particular uh, venue that I, sh- I knew I should have stayed away from, when I could indulge my flesh in some sort of sinful way. You left darkness rather than light, but for the Christian, for the one who is dead to sin, you're dead to the old way of life. And you now have redeemed desires. You have a new nature. And your desire is bent on doing good and on pleasing Christ and on knowing Him and on having fellowship with the Lord Jesus and being well-pleasing to God. Death to sin means we're dead to those old desires. We don't want to live in sin. We don't want to live in darkness. I don't want to live a life uh, that is built on sinful self-indulgence. I want to live a life to the glory of Christ. He is my delight. He is my joy. He is my pleasure. But thirdly, what does it mean for the Christian to be dead to sin? I think it means that the Christian, for the Christian, he or she is at war with sin. For the Christian, he or she is at war with sin. I'll read a couple of verses from Romans chapter 8. You don't need to turn there, but Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 13 says this. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. John Owen, great Puritan pastor, theologian, wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. Mortification is a big theological term. It means to kill. The killing of sin. He wrote a book called The Killing of Sin. Of sin. I think that title would sell a little bit better today than the mortification of sin. But he has this great line in there that I love and has really framed my thinking in terms of my relationship to sin. John Owen says this You, Christian, must be killing your sin, or sin will be killing you. You must be killing your sin, or sin will be killing you. So, as a Christian man, what is my relation? To sin. What is my posture towards sin? I contend it is to be one of all-out warfare. Our relation to sin is that of a bloody contest. The Christian is to scratch and to claw and to fight and to win over sin. And we are to take no survivors. We can't stop. We can't let up. We are dead to sin. And how can we who are dead in sin live any longer in it? Put to death the deeds of the body and you will live, says The Apostle Paul. To be buried with Christ in baptism represents a declaration of war on sin. When you see David up here being baptized and submerged under the water, symbolizing that he's dead to sin, one thing you should think is that David is making a declaration of war on his sin. He will not make a happy home with his sin. He will make every effort not to uh, entertain sin or to flirt with it. He's at war with sin. 
And he will proclaim that in baptism this morning. But unless you're discouraged, I feel I need to say no man or woman this side of heaven will be perfect. In any war, there will be casualties, there will be defeats, there will be setbacks. You will lose some battles. But by God's help, you will win more than you lose. And you will mortify your sin. So how does baptism symbolize all this? When you see a new disciple of Christ submerged under the water, he or she is in effect saying, I am dead to my sin. I am dead to the old way of life. Sin is no longer my master. I don't want sin. I no longer desire sin. I'm not dictated by sin. And I am at war with my sin. I am dead to sin. That is symbolized in the submerging of the believer underwater in baptism. But there's a second strain of symbolism in baptism, and that is that the Christian is made alive to God. So observe with me, secondly, that the Christian is made alive to God. Look at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin, that's what we just looked at, and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now look at how Paul opens this up in verse 4. Just a few verses over, back in verse 4, he says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Three points under this heading as well. What does it mean that a Christian is alive to God? First of all, it means that for the Christian, Jesus is his or her master. Jesus Christ, the Lord, is his or her master. Sin is no longer his or her master. It is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're a child of God, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, hopefully you know it is not enough just to embrace Jesus Christ for all his benefits as Savior. We must also embrace him as the Lord of our lives and seek to follow him in joyful obedience. As Paul says, we're to offer him our members, the members of our body, in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. We are alive to God. And so it means that Jesus Christ is our master and we walk in newness of life. And so we go to the scriptures and we say, what did Jesus teach? What does Jesus want me to do? That's what I want to do. He's my master. He's my Lord. I don't live in bondage to sin anymore. I'm not a slave to sin. I'm not listening to that old man. I'm not listening to that old master. I'm listening to the living Christ who is my Lord. And I'm alive to God. And therefore I'll submit to him and walk in newness of life. But secondly, what does it mean to be alive to God? It means that for the Christian, he or she desires to walk in newness of life. He or she desires to walk in newness of life. And if you're, if you're a Christian, you know what this is like. Whereas once you wanted sin, now you want to be well-pleasing to God. Whereas once you lived for yourself, now you live for the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to live for Him. You want to honor Him. You're you're all of a sudden delighted and joyful in the context of meeting with God's people. And you're bothered when you fall into sin. And you're happy when you're walking in obedience. And you know what it's like to enjoy communion with Jesus Christ. And to to sing to Him and to pray to Him. And that thrills your heart. For some of us, that may have been the most foreign thing in the world to us before we were converted. You look back on your life and the thought of being here and actually enjoying it. It's foreign to you. You remember the places you used to go, the people you used to hang out with, the activities you used to engage in? You're thinking, not me. I would never be the one sitting in church with my hands raised singing to God. None of my friends in high school would have predicted that that's where I would have been. And yet the Lord Jesus, what He has done for His people has changed their hearts. Put in them desires for Christ and His Word and His people and His church. 
It's what uh, Thomas Chalmers calls the expulsive power of a new affection. There's some million dollar words for you. You could go home today and say, we learned in church about the expulsive power of a new affection. What's he getting at? It's that there's this desire in me that I can't, I can't trace the origin of it. I don't know where it came from, but I want to please Christ. It's just growing up inside of me. And I'm, I'm joyful in the Lord. There's this expulsive power of a new affection that I have for Christ and his word and his people. I love the Lord Jesus. And I can tell you that wasn't there before. I want to be with God in paradise forever. That wasn't there before. I want Jesus Christ. For the Christian, what it means to be alive to God is that all all of a sudden now you're alive to these pleasures and joys and desires that weren't there before. And you know what it means, Psalm 16, that at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And you know those pleasures at the right hand of God. For the Christian, he or she is alive to God, meaning that Jesus is his or her master. He or she desires to walk in newness of life. And then thirdly and finally, what does it mean to be alive to God? It means that the Christian fights always for joy in God. Because he or she has been made alive to God. The Christian fights always for joy in God. That idea of being at war with sin, it's a two-way fight. We're fighting against our sin, killing our sin, killing the deeds of the flesh. And we're fighting always for joy in God. Because there's so many... Opponents who try to extinguish that joy. There's the world, there's the flesh, there's the devil, there's a host of distractions. And yet i got to fight for joy in God. Being alive to God means that a Christian is in warfare against sin and is fighting for joy in the Lord. But now thirdly and finally, what is symbolized in baptism? There's being buried with Christ in his baptism, being dead to sin, and then there's being raised to newness of life, being alive to God. And thirdly and finally, what it symbolizes is Union with Christ. Look again at verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. What do those last three words mean? In Christ Jesus. It means that for the Christian, he or she is united to the Lord Jesus. United to Him. I mean, how is it that we're considered dead to sin and alive to Christ anyway? I mean, how is the Christian dead to sin? Well, the idea is that if Christ died to sin, we too die to sin. If Christ was raised to newness of life, we too are raised to newness of life. How? Because we're united to Jesus. Because we're attached to Him. We're united to Him. And therefore, where He goes, I go. Where He is, I am and will be. If He is well-pleasing to God, then... Me, through my union with Christ, I'm made well-pleasing to God. And I'm clothed in His righteousness. And I'm well-pleasing to Him through my union with Christ. If you ask me, it's a pretty sweet deal. Christ gets all that I have to offer. My sin, my shame, my darkness, my bondage. And I get everything that He has. His life. His perfect righteousness. His record being well-pleasing to God. I'm given all of that. He takes all that's mine. I'm united to Christ. All that I have is His. And all that he has is mine, and I'm united to him. Through his death, I am freed from sin, and through his resurrection, I can live a life in freedom, in service to Christ, and to the glory of God. That is what is symbolized in baptism. It's nothing other than our union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. In a moment, David's going to come and share how the Lord moved in his life to save him, to change him, and then. We're going to sing and 
He'll be baptized. But I want to share just two words of application to us here this morning. As we observe this baptism taking place, as we observe what is being symbolized this morning. I want to say something first to those who have believed, repented, and followed. I want to say something to you Christians here. Paul, in Romans 6, is not giving these words at a baptismal ceremony. I'm preaching them at a baptism. We have a baptism in our minds. But Paul was just writing a letter to a church. He wasn't talking to uh, maybe a class of people who were um, wanting to join the church and wanting to be baptized and telling them what baptism signified. No, he was talking to Christians. And he's telling them to remember their own baptism. To think upon what it symbolized. What it meant. And so I encourage each and every one of you here who are children of God, who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, remember your own baptism. And remember the deep realities that it signified. And remember with the Apostle Paul that it meant we're dead to our sin. And how can we who were dead to sin live any longer in it? Therefore you, whether you're in the faith for 5 years, 10 years, 30 years, 50 years, you remember your baptism and remember that you're dead to sin and alive to God, united in the Lord Jesus Christ. And may it change the way that we live. It's a powerful symbol here. Submerged under the water, brought back up, dead to sin, alive to God. I remember that you, Christian, ought to be dead to sin and alive to God and ought to live like it. My wife and I have commented on this before. You go to a wedding. We were married a few years ago. We took vows together. You're at a wedding now and you see that new couple making their vows. And what does it do? You married couples. You could testify. Make sure you think upon your own vows that you made however many years ago. You're reminded of the realities that are signified in the marriage ceremony, the realities that took place in your own marriage. You think upon them as this other couple is making their vows. Well, may that happen for us this morning. As we see David uh, making, in a sense, his vows to the Lord to follow him, to serve him, as he follows the Lord Jesus in obedience in the waters of baptism, may we reflect on our own baptism. And may Christ draw near to us in power. And may we be reminded again that we need to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But secondly, I want to say something to those who haven't followed Christ, who haven't believed, who haven't repented, who haven't followed. And really, I just want to ask you a question. How's your sin working out for you? How's it going? Has sin been a kind master? Has sin kept all its promises? Sin treating you well? What about the wages sin pays? Are you happy? Are you safe? Are you at home? Scriptures tell us the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. You continue in darkness. You continue in your willful bondage and slavery to sin. And that will lead you to perish in hell forever. But if you embrace Christ, you can know what it is to be dead to sin, to be alive to God, and to be united to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be made whole, you will be made right, you will have perfect joy and happiness in the kingdom of heaven. And you will know what it's like to have that expulsive power of a new affection. You will know what it's like to love the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be hid with Him in God forever. The wages of sin is death. 
But the gift of God is everlasting life. And as a preacher of God's word, I hold that out to you this morning. May you be found, may you reckon yourself through Christ dead to sin and alive to God this morning. Well, I'm going to pray. And then David, if you will come and share your testimony, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, our sins are so great. They loom so large in our minds. And yet there's such a blessed strain of truth in your word that where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. Uh, That Jesus Christ's blood can cover every stain of sin. And so we could sing, as some of us have so often sung, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. May that prayer be on the lips of each person here this morning. That where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And that through what Christ has done, we could be reckoned dead to sin and alive to God. Lord, please, by your Spirit, convince every soul here that the wages of sin is death. And that bondage to sin will lead to eternal ruin. But the gift of God is everlasting life. And that that hope is held out through the Lord Jesus Christ to every individual here. May each of us be found in Christ today. We pray in his precious name. Amen.